For fish and wildlife to thrive in the United States, they need space. My next guest has spent a career helping secure woods and grasslands that support conservation. Now he's a recipient of a Presidential Rank Award and won in a series of interviews of PRA winners, the Deputy Director for Program Management and Policy at the Fish and Wildlife Service, Steve Girton, joins me now. Mr. Girton, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate the invitation. And congratulations on the PRA. Tell us, first of all, just Fish and Wildlife Service has a pretty big footprint in conservation and helping people like to hike and fish and hunt and so forth. Other agencies have animal concerns. Just fit the FWS into the general federal scheme of the animal-related agencies. Sure. So we're a land-managed agency like the U.S. Forest Service, the BLM, and the National Park Service, and that we manage our beautiful National Wildlife Refuge System, a diverse network of lands and waters that are dedicated to conserving our rich fish and wildlife heritage. And we've got about 568 National Wildlife Refuges, five marine national monuments, and those include 95 million acres of land and about 760 million acres of submerged lands and waters, much of that water, of course, in the Pacific. These range from the National Elk Refuge in Jackson, Wyoming, to local refuges here like Patuxet or Blackwater over in Maryland. And we support a lot of wildlife watching, fishing, hunting, and environmental education. Uh, We're also a regulatory agency and implement important environmental statutes like the Endangered Species Act and the Migratory Bird Protection Act. We're a big provider of technical assistance and permitting programs, and we also administer a lot of conservation grant programs, totaling over $1.5 billion. I loved your question about the animal architecture. We work very closely with counterpart agencies like NOAA, National Marine Fisheries Service. In very simplistic terms, uh, they focus on the saltwater, we focus on the freshwater, but we overlap along the coast and tidal rivers with a lot of anadromous fishery species. And we do some work on shared responsibilities and also the lead for marine mammals. All right. So a pretty big portfolio. And of those 95 million acres and 568 refuges, do they tend to border, say, land operated by the National Park Service or BLM? Or do you overlap any of the land? Or is it just simply there where they are and you are where you are? Here on the eastern part of the country, we're probably uh, more focused on uh, wetlands and riverine habitats. Out west, we would abut a lot of the national forests, national parks. What we try to do, though, is knit together all these conservation estate with private landowners and others to focus on larger landscape-level conservation goals. And over the years, you have helped secure and add to the nation's refuges and so forth. And what's involved? What are the challenges in dealing with landowners to convince them that this should be a refuge? And how does the whole process work? Sure. We spend a lot of time working on landscapes conservation. And the first part is just developing a shared vision for the future of that landscape and then try to knit together people with similar objectives. We do a lot of understanding of, of what is driving people on a landscape. You know, we're focused certainly on the wildlife management and fisheries resources. We have folks out there uh, ranching, uh, timber product industry, and, and other economic drivers. And they're passionate conservationists as well. And so we have a a very powerful tool in the form of conservation easements with uh, voluntary willing landowners who want to enter into a partnership with us. We allow them to continue their ongoing agricultural or, or forest product work, whatever they're doing, and manage it in a way to benefit wildlife. We go through a very detailed and robust public scoping and planning process, NEPA compliance, all the regulatory hoops, of course, there. 
and what's impressed me most about this work is the people I've met out there and their vision and their passion for conservation and the great relationships we've been able to carve out with groups like Partnerscapes. It's a nationwide leadership team of private landowners who want to work with us on wildlife conservation, and we want to work with them to keep their business intact. And are fishing and hunting allowed in some of the refuges? Because if it is private land and there's easements, that might be part of their agreement that, well, we don't want hunting and fishing on the land. So how does that work? And are there areas that you operate that people can do these types of sports? Sure. In very general terms, we don't require access onto an easement. Uh, That's left to the discretion of the private landowner. Some of them are welcoming of it. Some of it are not. In general terms, the federal estate, the National Wildlife Refuge System in and of itself, we have a very robust public access program for hunting, fishing, outdoor recreation, wildlife watching, and things like that, and go through a very formal process to open up those refuges and support public access. We're speaking with Steve Gurton. He's Director for Program Management and Policy at the Fish and Wildlife Service and a recipient of one of this year's Presidential Rank Awards. And with respect to the maintenance of the land, now when you talk to the National Park Service, you know, famously they have billions and billions of dollars of backlog of maintenance of lands and facilities, and there's been some legislation passed to funnel BLM money into the National Park Service. What about the refuges of the Fish and Wildlife Service? Do they require maintenance if they're just wild lands? And do you have a backlog for the maintenance that's required? Sure. We've got about a billion point three backlog in roads, visitor centers, workspaces, water impoundments, dikes and and levees, and then our national fish hatchery system as well, which is essentially a lot of plumbing and tanks uh, for propagation purposes. Some of these hatcheries are over 100 years old and some other investments uh, date from the 1950s and 60s. So we do a lot of work with Department of the Interior, OMB and the Hill to get results from programs like the Great American Outdoors Act through our annual appropriation process, uh, all with the goal of providing a quality experience for visitors onto the public estate, in our case, the refuge system. And that leads to the issue of appropriations and the fact that you are a regular testifier before Congress, and do you generally find that you get a good reception up there? We put a lot of effort into building trust and confidence with our authorizing and appropriations committee members and staff as well as the individual members and senators. You know, a lot of our issues, particularly regulatory determinations or or land use planning, can get a lot of attention up on the Hill. And so we try to be proactive, responsive, and develop clear channels of communications and always try to keep those lines open with both sides of the aisle. And and as you mentioned, I do testify a lot. I've done about two dozen hearings the last few years. was just up on the Hill yesterday, as a matter of fact. All right. And you personally, are you an outdoorsman yourself? Oh, yes. Family hiking, uh, camping, fishing. Love getting into the outdoors. And by the way, are you a fly fisherman or a you know rod and reel type guy? I'll fish wherever I can go with whatever works. My problem isn't the fishing itself. It's always been the catching part of the equation yeah. and doing better. On- well, don't, don't we all? And how did you get into this type of work of all possible federal careers? Just very inspired as a young person. I was very active in the scouts. I had the opportunity to do a lot of camping and hiking and just followed my passion. Very inspired by critical thinkers before me like Aldo Leopold and some of his essays on conservation and very appreciative of working for an agency with a lot of like-minded colleagues. We all have a lot of passion for what we do. Pilots, biologists, budget analysts, botanists, Law enforcement officers, uh, we're all united in our 
sincere belief to make sure there are fish and wildlife for the future and for future generations to enjoy here in the U.S. And when you have a title like Program Management and Policy, that doesn't sound like tramping through the woods and looking at trout in the eyeball, but you try to find time to do that, though, even in the context of a D.C. and lobbying and on the hill type of job? Yes, certainly. Uh, once we are released from some of the COVID uh, prohibitions on a lot of the travel, we do get the opportunity to get out to the field, visit with our folks, with our partners, get out on those landscapes, and really see what we're trying to accomplish with our mission. A couple of detail questions. Do you deal with the feral hog problem in the United States? Yes, we work with a lot of the partners, but mostly be the state fishing game agencies or some of the USDA programs that work on feral hogs. We'd be involved if they're uh, on some of our refuges. There's some pretty uh, pronounced issues out in states like Hawaii and Louisiana, for example. And the concern for us is they get in and root around a lot of the vegetation, uh, destroy the habitat, and, and compete with the species. We're more focused on, in, in many cases, endangered species. And do you have a personal refuge you like the most? I like any refuge I can get out to, but I do enjoy some of our local ones like Blackwater Refuge. I really enjoy the big ones out west, uh, National Elk, uh, Charles M. Russell, and I think an all-time favorite for me would be Kenai National Wildlife Refuge up in Alaska. Steve Gurton is Director for Program Management and Policy at the Fish and Wildlife Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, and thanks for all you do to talk about uh, the role of federal employees. All right. He's also a recipient of this year's Presidential Rank Award. And tomorrow we'll hear from the Senior Procurement Executive at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not... my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.